The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. My special guest on this week's show is Niels Brockner, one of the founders of Contract Book, who provide document and contract automation to over 150,000 users across the planet. Contract Book are based out of Copenhagen, and they've raised almost $45 million, mostly from US VCs, Tiger Global, Gradient, and Bessemer Venture Partners. So, Niels, welcome to this week's show. Thanks. Happy to be here. Now, just to kick things off, tell me a little bit about your background. How, when, and why did you set up Contract Book? My background is that I studied in London, a bachelor and master's degree, worked at Chilloin between my bachelor and master's. I moved back to London and I came up with, you know, my, 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 my first startup and built that and raised money simultaneously with doing my master's thesis, actually. And then I um, crashed and burned. And that was, you know, a really good experience. And then we would ran a digital studio because people were excited about the brand we built for that startup. And um, that generated a lot of clients and was really, really cool. Like cool time, we generated a small business. And then, but suddenly we're sitting back in the same kind of atmosphere as working at Shell Oil with the middle management in big corporates and like IBM and the biggest Danish bank and that kind of stuff and telco companies. So I went back to my co-founder at that point and from my first company as well, who's still my co-founder and CPO, and said, hey, we need to figure out what to do. And we decided that we invested uh, some of our money into some new startups. And ContraBook was not one of the companies we invested into. It was actually an idea where one of our current clients said, hey, there's something in this contract space that doesn't make any sense, especially for the SMBs. And over a cup of coffee, coffee a night, we sat and talked and he said, hey, I know I can't, do, I can't afford you guys, but I would love to work with you. And we decided that night that uh, I explained to him how we would do it, in my opinion. And he said, yes, that's exactly how we should do it. And then we, on the back of a napkin, decided on how to split the company and, and just went nuts based on that. To start with, uh, it was very slow. It was our own small amounts of money. And then at the, in the middle of 16, I came in and, and said, okay, now I believe that this is something we can take some places and I raised money. And in 17, we raised our first kind of real pre-seed uh, money. And uh, so ever since, like we haven't looked back. That's kind of the, that's the short story. Okay. What are the challenges of building a global software business from, from Copenhagen? I mean, you may have Noma, my favorite restaurant on the entire planet, but do you have a truly supportive startup ecosystem? I think we do. I think Copenhagen is a really, really great place to be. And I think it's a, it's an awesome place with a million good startups and a really a lot of good kind of generalists and brains. There's fewer specialists than generalists because that's how we educate people. We educate middle management management, basically, in my opinion, uh, more than anything else. So there's a lot of good minds that has kind of an idea of how to do something. So the ecosystem itself is really good. And I think that's really good startups come out of, uh, out of Denmark. I'm not very much into it myself, actually. 
but I think there's a bit too much bullshit in, in these kind of areas, like where people uh, basically kind of stand and talk around about their ideas. But if you ask them to actually put in, let's say, $50,000 or put something at risk themselves, they're not like, ah, it's not that important. Like, I'll just take a job. It's a really good environment with a lot of cool, cool people, but I actually don't spend too much time on it. Okay. And tell me about your funding process. You've raised most of your funding from the States. Why did you head outside of Europe for VC funding? We didn't. They came to us. Like I was to start with until 19, we only had Danish investors. So we had global ambitions, aspirations, but yeah, we had Danish investors. So in 19, the summer of 19, uh, Google's AI fund gradient reached out and uh, said, hey, we've been following what you guys are doing. We love the format you're working in, the JSON format. We believe that's going to be the future. Like it's a better kind of compatible data layer to work in. Kind of this is this is what we believe is going to be the future, among others. And they decided that they wanted to kind of support our, our journey and, and invest in us uh, pretty quickly. Um, and then that kind of opened the doors because when you have a Google VC in, then a lot of people get super interested. And uh, yeah, so so that was that was actually why. But when we last spoke, you mentioned that um, you've got a a preference for the for the way US VCs engage with entrepreneurs. You feel more comfortable with their ability to support you and uh, and add value. So walk we'll, we'll me through those thoughts in a, in a little more detail. Yeah. So the, the reason why I'm supportive is that what this setup is that in the US, they have a bigger or more kind of a huge, larger history of doing this and more successes. So the risk is also a lot more risk willing, where the European or Danish investors are more risk averse, in my opinion. The feeling is that they support the founders. They really support the idea. They really want you to succeed. They don't want to cannibalize your business. They're kind of going all in on on investing in you. And that level of support, I think, is a bit different. They also, I think, have just have more money in their funds. So they don't see the same risk in you. So even if you don't succeed, they're okay. And I work better in support than under under a hammer of pressure. Like, like and I think that most people become self-employed people and whatever, they 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 don't thrive well under under kind of like micromanagement, right? So if you feel micromanaged after you find, find investors, you probably have the wrong investor. Like I think that the American investors we have, at least they don't try to micromanage what we've been doing. I know you've got some really interesting views on Startup IQ. It's a, it's a concept that you walked me through last time. So standard intelligence IQ and emotional IQ, those are well-established but you've got this thesis around startup IQ, and I'd love to hear more about this. So, so what constitutes startup IQ in your opinion? How do you measure it? And how do you know someone really has it before they join your company? I'm not 100% confident that I'm not going to change my mind of how I explain this at this point, because it's not really, it's, we're trying to coin it, but oh, I am trying to coin it, but I haven't really decided on kind of exactly what it is yet. I'm trying to write a piece on it as well. Basically, you have like you have a corporate IQ. Like you have people who's really good at navigating big systems, like in big uh, corporations and bureaucracy and stuff like that. I think you can have both. You can have startup IQ and corporate IQ. But I think what's difficult is to learn 
startup IQ if you have only learned corporate IQ. Like if you only try to navigate in the big systems of bureaucracy and where you can always push an email to the side, it's going to be more difficult to understand startup IQ and have startup IQ. Startup IQ is, is something where you're proactive, you're looking for the issues, you understand when you're finding an issue and a problem in the, in the setup, you're probably the one who has to solve it. And you have, yeah, yeah you, you like uh, working in, 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 in chaos, basically. You like change stuff that changes all the time or are not rattled by stuff changing all the time because in most startups or scale-ups, stuff is changing all the time. Like, like goals are changing, targets for revenue, targets for the business, the product itself. Stuff changes all the time, monthly, quarterly, you know, sometimes even weekly, where you decided on something that was a great idea. And then the week after you figure out, okay, that was actually a really horrible idea. We need to completely pivot away from that. So if you like working on a, like in a big corporation, I worked at Shell Oil at that point, I remember that they had that, you know, I think it was a 2020 plan and this was back in 12 and 11. So if you, if you, if you're looking for a company with a 2030 plan for you to thrive in and develop in, I think that startups might not be the right place because, you know, we have a 18 months plan, right? Like we have an idea of what we're going to do for the next 18 months, maybe 24. And we have an idea where we want to be in five years, but we haven't really kind of, we can't put it down to paper and sign off and say, this is how we're going to be then five years. Well, we can, but it's most likely going to change. So people who thrive in a very kind of agile place to work where there is some level of chaos and you have to be super smart, obviously to do it. And it's all about your bandwidth and, and, excitement about solving problems and enthusiasm about changing the world and not just, you know, being a one piece in a bigger puzzle, but you're one of the main pieces in a smaller puzzle. And I think that's, that's something you have to, and it's very difficult to, to explain. You also asked, how do you actually figure it out? You can feel it basically on people. You can feel the spark. Obviously, sometimes you can't, but quite often based on the little things they say, like people can be really great at interviewing, but you can kind of start picking out tendency and pattern match where you can see, oh, when they say that, that's probably just a person who loves working IBM. Like, and then like he would be great or she would be great in IBM. And that's nothing wrong with that. It's just for a company like ours, like who's not IBM, we need a different type of person. Sure. My next question though, is startup IQ different to scale up IQ? Because you're not really a startup anymore. I think that I think scale-up IQ is grown-up startup IQ. It's where you like as a company and as, as founders, we always have to graduate. We are graduating out of one level into another. And I think that people with startup IQ and a high bandwidth or horsepower, they go into this, they mature into scale-up IQ. Let's call it scale-up IQ. It's closer to corporate IQ or it kind of it's it's closer to it because there becomes more stuff to navigate in which is more bureaucratic there becomes more board reporting it becomes less vision and more kind of how do you perform on a quarterly basis are we happy with what we see are the numbers the right ones it's a development of the startup IQ personally i think it's quite a different animal that succeeds and even enjoys working in a in a true startup you know the total chaos of those early days, it's quite a different person to the individual who can scale as the business scales from several million in revenue up to several tens of million in revenue. 
But it also comes down. So if you if you have great, great startup IQ, let's say you have great startup IQ, then you're super agile. You're really good at kind of consuming knowledge, bringing it to life, and actually putting that into work. Obviously, in the world of scale-ups, there's not that many. So the few ones who actually have that great, great, great startup IQ, who actually graduate like greatly and gracefully into the scale-up IQ, become the leaders of multiple scale-ups. That's also why they are reused, I guess, like from scale-up to scale-up and startup to startup, right? You see, again, I think you can, can pattern match and it's not, when we're recruiting, obviously we're looking at people at this point who has done this before, like who's done something like this before. It's not like, <laughs> it's like we don't want completely green people at this point. Like we need people who have some experience because we are going through some phases that most of the founders, like all the founders in this company have not experienced before. So we need the support as well from people with the scale of experience. And talking about hiring and team building. So when we last spoke, you mentioned you're inspired more by famous sports coaches and managers than you are by business leaders. So you're a huge NBA fan, I think. Who are some of your sporting leadership heroes? And what have you learned from them about how to hire and build a world-class team? I'm not sure I have any kind of managers that I'm like, I'm I'm a great fan of that manager per se. I think that there is there is some 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 really legendary ones, but I've written an article about Steve Kerr. I think what he's done is super interesting. I think that it's a great example of a basically a startup that grew in like in 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 in, in, in the Warriors. They basically grew a company or grew a set of players in one generation into stardom into a very successful team who was competing or winning championships. But they also had a culture of how to incorporate better talents even. Their best player at that point was, I think, Steve Curry. And Steph Curry, they had the chance to actually get Kevin Durant, who might be the best player in the basket in basketball at that point. And instead of Steph Curry cannibalizing his position as the MVP of his own team. He actually rather win more and create an even bigger dynasty and become the second best player in his own team to win even more, which is a very good, I think, is something that I think you could contribute to the to, to the coach. I think that the coach and the managers in this team has done a lot to kind of embrace the egos, but even also kind of develop the egos into something which is an understanding that the team is bigger than the, the single player. I think that there is in football, you have multiple, uh, you have where the transfer market is a bit more or soccer, where the transfer market is a bit more kind of volatile and crazy at times. You see it a lot as well. I also find it super interesting to understand the dynamics about young players joining super teams like football or basketball teams, like how you manage that. Because in many ways, a startup could be seen as a super talent player who cut, who then gets you know, a higher salary and a, you know, everything to stardom. And now it's for them just to, to perform. When you go into a setup like ours, like there's very little excuse not for performing. I love it personally because I'm a competitor. Like I love competing. I love the fact that when, you know, when we get now, you need to be able to perform at this level and you don't have any excuses. I love it. I think it's perfect. It's perfect for me. But as a, um, but I think there's also many, many companies who have a hard time scaling and feel that it's dangerous. I feel, okay, now I need to do all this stuff. And it's, it's nerve-wracking. I have to do that. And obviously, it's nerve-wracking. But you also see in basketball, again, like you have a great player. You look at Doncic, who's super young, but one of the best players in, in the league at this point. 
because he embraces the moment. Like he, he, he's not afraid. He's not afraid of the, the stardom and the power he's given in such a young age because he has the talent. Like he's not afraid of it. And I love that. I, I think it's, the, it's like what's going to witness the great leaders in, in startups, also people who's not afraid of making the right choices or learning by making some wrong decisions. That's the people you're looking for in these kind of setups. It's not necessarily only the proven superstar. Sometimes it's always, it's also something as me being basically the manager or the coach is finding the true talents who you can empower or the guy who maybe or girl who wasn't a top performer in the other setup, but would be a great performer in your setup. How do you figure that out before they join you? So how do you, through interviews or tests or whatever, reference checking, how do you really get your head around whether someone could be a better performer inside your organization than they were in their current or previous company? You do it via interview process. So obviously, depending on the role, but you test them, you interview them, you spend a lot of time. If you're in doubt, you're not. That's my saying. Like you figure out if you feel that these guys would guys or girls would be able to perform in your setup. Sometimes you have people who even have a hard time getting a job who then you give a job like like thing, and then they're just super performing in that setup where they just needed a chance. Like they had, or like they might just had two little credentials in in you know, merits doing their studies or something, and then, you know, or they had a break which was too large between after the one job or something, and then you're the guy or the girl giving them that that job, that opportunity. So again, I think it comes down to, you can feel it. It's a bit like it's the hunger. Sometimes it's just the hunger. You can feel that they really want to make a difference. They can. You can feel that they really want to join the team. I also ask, I personally ask about uh, what the most important thing is that they learn from their parents. I love that question. That'd be like kind of figuring out what mentality are they raised with? Like, what is the thing that, that reminds them of their, you know, what is the thing that they learned from, like from home? Like that says a lot about people as well. And you can kind of get a, a sense of who they are. That's an interesting question. I haven't come across that one before. So when you're asking that question about the nurturing from the family home what are the things you loved to hear or, or ideally would like to hear in their responses or the themes or ideas you you like them to share there is no right or wrong answer first of all i think it's very much also how you deliver your answer and the argumentation by it like why would you say that because for, for me like i'm i'm i what i learned is that i can tell what i what i am is that you don't stop like if you start something, you have to kind of end it. Like you cannot, you know, the people who, you know, start a driver's license and then are halfway through it, or they have to actually go to all the lessons and meet up with the driving instructor. Oh, fuck it. I'm just going to stop. Or they go to the army and then three months into it. Oh, it's also tough. I have sometimes to sleep in the tent and it's cold. Oh, I'm out. Or Steve Jobs going to Stanford and then dropping out. <laughs> There's a lot of dropouts in, in university as well. It's not, I'm not saying that, 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 but for me, it's important. It's something that, that I learned from home that is important to, and you have to follow your dreams and you have to do, do kind of, kind of, when you say A, you have to say B. You have to finish through. And you might figure out that it's not, that there is no winning in that. And then you have to stop at some point, but you can't just stop it, not kind of going through the process. What you like to hear is, is kind of trustworthiness and empathy and these kind of things that you want to know that people are nice. Like I really care about how people are towards the team. And, and, and I think that 
if you generally just treat others like you want to be treated, I think you can create a really good work environment pretty easy. And earlier on in this conversation, we talked about planning for the next 18 months, 24 months, probably about as far as you can realistically get in a company the, the size of contract book. Having said that, what is your longer term vision for the business? So where would you like to be in 2025? Obviously, our, our, our goal is to be, you know, is world domination. Like we're, we aim for nothing less. Uh, we have a great syndicate of investors. Uh, we have really good people. We have a good supporting team. We have one of the best products in the world, in my opinion. And we have a really uh, underlying data format that non- nobody can really compete with. And I see this as a the market as a huge storm, bad weather. Like we're going through bad weather and everybody's in, so, in their own boat. And it just like this, uh, at this point, it's not a race yet. It's about survival. And then in 25, maybe we're going to be out the weather is like, it's gone down, like it's nice weather. And then you're going to see which five, 10 boats is left. And then it's going to be a race. And I believe we're going to be about among the five, 10 boats left. Then I don't know if we're going to win. We're going to consume the others. We're going to get consumed or whatever. But I'm quite sure that we have a robust boat and we're going to get through the weather. Okay. And you've mentioned um, sailing. You've mentioned... Uh basketball earlier on being an entrepreneur is a tough gig how do you relax and stay sane when you're not hands-on with contract book i'm not sane at all <laughs> i play a lot of sports i try to relax with my girlfriend and dog and go places in terms of like kind of weekend trips i think i have a pretty good balance i also don't believe in work-life balance i believe more kind of in life balance that you just need to do something that you're happy with and if if you're, if you're happy with what you do, then it's not about finding a balance between the two. It's about, it is maybe, but it's, but it's, it's a different, like if you're happy, then it's not like I'm off work or I'm at work. I really personally like what I'm doing. So I'm, I'm one of the people when it's Thursday, I hope it's Wednesday. And when it's Sunday, I'm looking forward to Monday. Spoken like a true entrepreneur. Yes. It is, but it is. But I feel that most people actually actually enjoy going to work. They enjoy the camaraderie. They enjoy what we're doing. They enjoy the vision and the ambition. It doesn't feel dreadful to go to work. I'm quite sure I can say that if you try to interview everybody who works here, like this is just not the sense you're getting. Most people who's getting onboarded here, like this is the best place. I've never tried to work a place like this. This is so awesome. Like the, the camaraderie, the welcoming people, nobody's judgmental. This is just a really, really good place to be. And this is what we've been trying to do is create a great place for people to be and go to work. Because when I worked in Shell Oil to kind of full circle back is that I didn't enjoy any days at work. I hated every day at work. For me, it was about figuring out how do I get in 15 minutes later and go 15 minutes before and my boss not being. And I was still the best guy. I was leading my team. We did. Uh, we implemented SAP nine months ahead of schedule in the Nordics with me leading the team. and. I still hated my job. I, I thought it was boring. It was uninspirational. It was in brackets and bureaucracy and all kinds of stuff that I didn't like. So at this point, what we tried to do when I started my company was just to create a place where if you meet somebody in a hotel lobby in five years time, I would like to know that I've tried to create the five best work years of their life. And I would like to be able to know that I sat down and we can actually, I would enjoy sharing memories with these people. 
and or this one person and sitting and having a coffee or a beer and just you know speaking about the the war stories from back in 2022 or something like that that's what i aim towards how has covid impacted on on that so this culture wonderful team orientation and everybody feeling so positive about coming to work day in day out have those feelings and that kind of cultural those kind of cultural values been impacted at all by covid and and, and the need to work remotely we're born remote first so uh, we we are in that way a very modern company you can work from wherever you will want to in the world some people are in the office in in copenhagen uh, most of the commercial team is and that's also due to them being commercial people so they're mo- most likely a bit more social I think that COVID has also changed people's mindset about being working from home. I think before people were very happy about it. We came through the period of like ourselves, but due to the fact that they now have been limited from going to even a work a co-working space, I think that people start, even the most pro remote workers, they actually are missing the social and the camaraderie, being able to meet up at meetups at that kind of stuff, which we do, but haven't really been able to do the past 18 months. We are born remote. We have an office in New York. We have an office in, in Copenhagen, but half of the company, more than half of the company work remote every day. Well, it's been fascinating talking to you, hearing about your uh, startup IQ, scale-up IQ, and this um, really harmonious culture you should seem to have built remote first. Wish you and the team huge success over the coming months and years. And thank you so much for joining me on this week's podcast. Thanks for having me. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.